God had just delivered the children of Israel from Egypt with a mighty hand. While Moses was to lead them out, it took 10 divine plagues to effect that deliverance. 10 plagues demonstrating the Hebrew God's supremacy over all of the gods of Egypt, starting with turning the Nile to blood, demonstrating Yahweh's power over Hapi, the, the god of the Nile. Now, I'm not going to go through each one of the ten, but the last two were also significant. The ninth plague was darkness over the land, demonstrating Yahweh's power over Ra, the Egyptian sun god, the second highest of the gods. The last, however, was most potent, death of the firstborn throughout the land to include Pharaoh's house. You you see, Pharaoh, thought to be the son of Ra, was seen as the highest god, and even his household was not spared. By this time, there could be no doubting the Hebrew god's supremacy. So the Israelites finally left Egypt after over 400 years of largely slavery, captivity. They headed toward Canaan, the land of promise, led by God himself and the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Could, could there be any doubt in God's presence, his greatness? Why, shortly after leaving Egypt, Pharaoh changed his mind about letting them go, so he and his entire army pursued them right to the edge of the Red Sea. <laughs> they were hemmed in. Destruction seemed imminent. But this was no problem for Yahweh, the Hebrew God. He simply positioned himself in the pillar of cloud between the Israelites and the pursuing Egyptian army. He had instructed Moses to to raise his staff over the sea, and and it miraculously parted. Walls on each side. I often wondered if it kind of looked like an aquarium. They walked across on dry ground. The Egyptian army, they decided to pursue them through the sea. But the walls of water came crashing down, destroying them all. Could there be any doubt that God was the God of gods, the most powerful, in fact, powerful, in fact the, the only living and true God? He led them to Mount Sinai. He called Moses up to the mountain to give him the law, as well as the, 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 the instructions for building the tabernacle. Because as we've seen, the law was never intended to justify anyone, to make anyone right. Rather, it was given to expose. Indeed, it was given to magnify their sinfulness and and drive them to trust God's grace through faith in the sacrificial system. In fact, during Moses' time up on the mountain in Exodus chapter 28, God instructed Moses that his brother Aaron and his descendants from the tribe of Levi would be the priests for the people. The Levitical priesthood was born. Aaron. Now Moses was, while, while Moses was on the mountain, the people became impatient. Shocking. They, they went to, to Aaron and said, we don't know what happened to, to Moses and his God. We don't know what's happened to this God who delivered us from Egypt a, a few weeks ago with those miraculous plagues, who divided the Red Sea to deliver us from the Egyptian army, who, who by this time had fed them manna from heaven and, and quail from the desert and water from the rock. <laughs> All of that apparently wasn't enough. Make us a God we can worship. So Aaron, Aaron, 
gathered gold from them and fashioned a golden calf. He said to them, behold, the God who led you out of Egypt. You understand that hunk of metal before them a few hours ago had been earrings and bracelets. Aaron, who was the first high priest of the people, made the golden calf. This Aaron, who was to represent the people to God and God to the people. To suggest that priesthood from its inception was weak and ultimately useless seems quite evident. There would be need, you see, for another priesthood, a superior priesthood, a perfect priesthood, one through which the people would be made perfect. And so hundreds of years after the institution of the law and the Levitical priesthood, God through David promised another priesthood would indeed come, one according, we've seen it, according to the order of Melchizedek. And the Messiah would be both, who would be both king and priest would be of that order, not, not that temporary and ultimately ineffective Levitical priesthood. His point? So why would you abandon the perfect priesthood for the imperfect temporary, ineffective priesthood. Why would you do that? Why indeed? This is what we've been studying over the past few weeks in Hebrews. In the first 10 verses of Hebrews 7, the author proved that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham and and therefore Levi, who who was yet unborn. And then in verses 11 to 19 from, from last week, we saw that it was need for a new priesthood. And in fact, we needed a whole different tribe. We needed a new commandment. Since the old priesthood, the old law, in short, the entire old covenant made no one eternally perfect. So so why would you abandon the new covenant for that old miserable one? That brings us to the text this morning. You see, the author's going to continue his comparison of the, of the old Levitical priesthood with the new Melchizedekian priesthood to, to prove that it was eternally superior. Let me, let me outline the, the, the chapter for you. It, chapter 7, its overall purpose is to prove that Jesus is a better priest because he came from the Melchizedekian order and he brought a, a better covenant, a, a new covenant. We've seen that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and therefore Levi. And the, the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood last week. This week, he continues, the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater by the oath that originated it. it the, the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater by its permanence. And the Melchizedekian priesthood is greater by its, its perfect priest. In each of those points, to be clear, you could substitute the name Jesus for the Melchizedekian priesthood. As our great high priest, Jesus is better than the Levitical priest. Jesus is better by the oath of of his own father. Jesus is better because he is a permanent high priest. And Jesus is better because, well, he's perfect. So why would you quit? Why would you leave? This point. Look at the text with me, Hebrews 7, verses 20 to the end of the chapter. And inasmuch as it, this new priesthood, was not without an oath, for they, the Levitical priests, indeed became priests without an oath. But, but he with an oath, through the one who said to him, 
the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So, so much the more, because of this also, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Those former priests, on the one hand, existed in great, greater numbers because, well, they were prevented by death from continuing. <laughs> they kept dropping like flies. But Jesus, on the other hand, he became, uh, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever. Don't miss that. Don't miss the connection. Because he's a permanent priest. He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. What's he like? Well, let me tell you, he's holy. He's innocent. He's undefiled, separated from sinners. He's exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and for the sins of the people? Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, miserable, ultimately useless. But the word of the oath, which, which came after the law, appoints the son made perfect forever. Now, I, I suspect I know what you're thinking right now, and, and you would be right. These are truths that we have already uh, either covered or have at least heard implied in the last few weeks. But this is obviously important to the author. Why? Well, we know because his readers were actually considering leaving the new and better covenant, the one instituted permanently by oath from the Father, the one who has as its perfect high priest none other than Jesus, the very Son of God. They were, they were, can you believe that? They were considering abandoning that. And so I ask, is there a place for us to be reminded that, of that in our culture today? Again and again. Is our, our, our culture guilty of abandoning the Christian faith? Popular. Turning from Christ and, and seeking fulfillment? Forgiveness of sin in another religion or in no religion at all? I want you to know that to declare these truths about Jesus to you is my greatest joy. Here's, here's what I want for you. I want you to find in Jesus your greatest treasure, your greatest satisfaction, so much so that you would never even consider leaving. Why would you do that? Do you understand the treasure you have? Today we'll be reminded that Jesus is greater. He's greater by his Father's oath. He's greater by his permanent priesthood and he's greater by his own perfection. Look at verses 20 to 22 with me. Verse 19 had said the law with its priesthood made nothing perfect. So, so Jesus, <laughs> he brought a better hope through which we can actually draw near to God. This was incredibly good news. If the law and its corresponding priesthood made nothing perfect, this is obvious, we need another. Again, I will repeat what I said last week. Being good 
Obeying the law, you know, like most of the time, the Ten Commandments will never work. It will never justify you. It will never make you right before God because you can't keep it, not perfectly. And so another priesthood was promised and another priesthood came. And this one was declared not without an oath. Seems like a double negative to me, which is saying this priesthood was declared by an oath. We saw that back in chapter 6, that the, the old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, well, they became priests with, without an oath. Well, how did they become priests? <laughs> Simply by physical descent. The, 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 the priests were of the family of, it, of Aaron within the tribe of Levi. We've, we've seen that, have we not? But, but this priest was declared so by an oath, and not just any oath. It was an oath declared by God himself when he said, back in Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn he's not going to change his mind. You, Jesus, Messiah, you are a priest forever. And we remember God cannot lie. And, and so an oath was really unnecessary, but God swore it by an oath to make it doubly sure, not for him, but for you. Doubly sure. You can count on it. One commentator I had noted how every word, every phrase of Psalm 110, verse 4, is mined over and over. Actually, he used the word ransacked for its meaning. See, put all of that together. God swore it uh, with an oath. As such, he's not going to change his mind. He's not a God who changes his mind. And he, and he swore that the Messiah would be a priest forever. We'll talk about permanence in, in just a moment. But the point here is that God instituted this priesthood by an oath from himself. Yes, the old priesthood he instituted as well, the Levitical priesthood, but not with an oath. This one, to be sure, was instituted by an oath, making it, his point is, his point is eternal and unchangeable. You see, by this wording, the, the author is implying the transitory, temporary nature of the first priesthood. I want you to get that. The old priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, had a built-in obsolescence because it was never intended to bring anyone to perfection. It was never intended to last forever. It has served its time, and now the time has come for it to be set aside meaning you cannot go back to it. It is empty. It is bankrupt. To use the author's word, it's useless. So why would you try to get God to like you? Why would you try to get God to accept you by keeping the law when it has been set aside? You can't. Notice the conclusion of that oath made priesthood in verse 22 because Jesus is a priest forever by this oath. He became the guarantee of a better covenant. It's the first time the author used the word covenant, but from here on out, it will become quite central, quite important. In fact, the word will now appear 17 times in the book, 14 more times than any other New Testament book because, you see, Jesus brought the new covenant, and it's a better covenant. I'm going to talk about that in the weeks to come in chapters 8, 9, and 10. But remember, better is key, key word in this book, and a better covenant brought by a better priest and a better priesthood is the central theme of the book. And since the ever-living, don't miss that, the ever-living Jesus brought it, he becomes the guarantee of the new covenant. 
The only place this word guarantee is used in the New Testament. So what does it mean to be a guarantee? A past life, uh, I, was actually, I was actually bivocational and I was a banker for, for some time. I actually was a loan officer for a little while. So people would come to me. I always noticed that when they came to get a loan from me, they were always very nice until I told them no. And they were not so nice. Be nice to your loan officers. You had to have one of three things. One of three things. First, you had to have good credit, which serves as a sort of guarantee that you can be trusted to repay the loan. And so depending on how good your credit is, sometimes you can get what are called unsecured loans. It's just your word that you will repay because you have in the past. Good credit, good collateral. That is security that if you don't repay, repay the loan, someone stands behind, something stands behind the loan to cover it. So you get a house loan, you get a car loan, and the house or the car is the collateral. If you default on the loan, the bank gets the collateral, they get your house, they get your car to satisfy the debt. Third, not something, but someone. You need a good cosigner. That is someone who stands behind you guaranteeing the loan. <laughs> I remember, again, when I was a loan officer, some 18, 19-year-old would come in, and they want a loan for a motorcycle, and they would bring their 21-year-old friend <laughs> who maybe had a motorcycle, <laughs> And to be the cosigner, and I'd look at him and I'd go, like, who are you? And he'd say, well, we're friends. And I'd say, get out of here. You see, to be a cosigner, there's got to be a commitment. I, I would personally only take cosigners from family members. I remember when my brother-in-law, Brian, wanted a motorcycle. Yes, I was the cosigner. So I, I was the brother-in-law, and I told him, Brian... I don't care if it's the first payment or the last payment. I make one payment. The motorcycle's mine. He never missed a payment. If you default as a cosigner, if the person defaults the loan, the guarantor steps in to be responsible. So they must be close. They must be committed. Jesus is all three. He's got great credit. We'll see that in a moment. He lived a perfect life, meaning that he met the just demands of the law, thereby guaranteeing our forgive, forgiveness under the new covenant. He is both collateral and cosigner, since we have, in fact, already defaulted on the loan. Since we were not perfect as required by God, we have a debt we could never pay. So Jesus stepped in to, to take our place as collateral and cosigner. In fact, just to be clear, he's the only signer. You're not a cosigner. This dumb bumper sticker, Jesus is my co-pilot. Listen, I, I like the other one. There. Jesus is your co-pilot, switch seats. <laughs> Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's it. He's not the, your co-signer. He's it. You had nothing with which to pay. He had guaranteed through his perfect life the better covenant for you. So in one sense, he became the guarantee for us from the Father. Remember, he's the mediator, so he becomes the guarantee for us. But in another sense, he is actually guaranteeing, this is incredible, the, the faithfulness and fidelity of God toward us. You see, God promised the better covenant with an oath. And then Jesus becomes the guarantor of that promise. God made a promise, swore it by an oath, and then Jesus becomes the guarantor. How are you going to lose? Hebrews 6 verse 17 says it this way. Speaking of this oath, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed. The ESV actually has it guaranteed. That's, the same, that, that, that's a great word. It's not the same word as our word, but it is a synonym. He guaranteed the promise with an oath. 
It cannot become more secure than that. God promised it, promised it by an oath, the Son secured it. You're sealed by the Spirit. What more do you want? An old hymn written in the 1700s by Charles Wesley, obviously not impacted by his brother's theology, written, it called, that was a joke, Arise, my soul, arise. The first verse says it. Actually, the entire song is incredible. It's good. But the first verse says it this way. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. Listen to me, people. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety, my guarantee stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on his hands. Hallelujah. What do you have to fear? Why would you leave? Brings us to our second point, the Melchizedekian priesthood is better because of its permanence, verses 23 to 25. Verse 23 talks about that old priesthood, the former priest, the Levitical priests. They, on the one hand, existed in great numbers because they kept dying. They couldn't continue in the role. Death prevented it. And so there was Aaron, followed by Eliezer, followed by uh, Phineas, and so on. If Josephus, the Jewish historian, got it right, there were 83 high priests from Aaron to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Sounds about right, but in fact, it doesn't matter. What matters is they all died. They're dead. And therefore, they were unable to continue the role. Here's the point. Dead priests cannot do their work of intercession any longer, and therefore they cannot accomplish eternal salvation. That's the point. But notice the eternal contrast in verse 24. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. <laughs> he continues forever because he's alive. And because God confirmed by an oath that he would hold that priesthood forever. Further, by his resurrection, he is the power of, we saw this, of an indestructible life. He holds the position permanently. No one else need apply. He's got it. This is a significant contrast with this former priesthood. Every time they died, guess we better get another one. By the way, you might be interested to know there has not really been any since the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So what are you going to go back to? Jesus is the last and lasting high priest of the order of Melchizedek. There is no need for another. Verse 25, what is the conclusion of the matter? Therefore he is, it culminates in this. Therefore he is able to save forever. That's you. Forever, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So much truth. Because Jesus is forever the high priest, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God. The, the, the word forever means, well, forever, it means without end, but it also implies utterly or totally or completely. He saves forever and completely, forever and fully those who draw near to God through him. You see, we're going to find those former priests, the ones who died. They, they could only do their job while they lived, but they died. 
And they had to offer sacrifices day after day and year after year. And all along, they never brought perfection to anyone. You want to go back to that? You want to trade in Jesus for Aaron? Really? So Jesus, the high priest, forever is able to say forever those who draw near to God. Draw near to God. We sit. We've seen that. That's the point. Remember, we talked about it last week. The veil kept people from the presence of God. The Levitical priest would only go in, well, the Levitical high priest, actually, would only go into his presence once a year. And, and, and they could bring nobody with them. Only them. Once a year. And you could not go. You want to trade Jesus for that one? Do you see, if Jesus, when, when, when Jesus came, he entered beyond the veil as a forerunner, bringing a better hope through which we are able to draw near to God. I want to be clear. If Jesus had never come, you would never have been able to draw near to God. Yes, the Old Testament saints did in a sense in that those Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Christ. But if that to which they pointed never came, they would have forever been lost. You would ever, they would have forever been kept at a distance. So would have you. You see, he is able to say forever. Those who draw near to God through him. And it's all ultimately about him and through him. So again, why would you leave Jesus? That's not a very good trade. Further, I'll just throw this in, no extra charge. Why would you hide Jesus from others? If he's it, why would you hide him? Why would you be embarrassed of him? Why would you be ashamed of him? Why do you not speak? We have great news. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, what does this mean? It speaks of the permanence of the priesthood. He is the ever-living one, alive to make intercession. Now, sometimes I think we have the wrong idea about this, probably because uh, those songs are, are written concerning this concept. The idea is sometimes is that we imagine that God, the Father, is angry, sitting on his throne, ready to dispense justice on those disobedient people. But Jesus stands between us and God and keeps God from zapping us. He intercedes for us continually. Not that one, he's mine. We've all heard that, right? <laughs> oh, he's just getting ready to crush him. I suppose there is a sense in which that may be true. That is because of the perpetual finished work of Christ that he sits at the Father's right hand as a constant reminder to the Father of his finished work. After all, Revelation 5 says he bears in his body the marks of the crucifixion. But it is not, listen to me, listen to me. It is not like the Father is one, clueless, or second, um, forgetful, or third, against us. Will you remember that? God the Father is not against you. He sent his own son for us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. In great joy, he delights over those who have repented and drawn near through the son. And he will, listen to me, he welcomes us. He welcomes you. The father welcomes you. So in that sense, Jesus makes perpetual intercession for us through, it's not like he's sitting there begging. 
pleading. It's not that, that he does that. He makes perpetual intercession through his final finished work, which stands forever. There are other verses which speak of Jesus making intercession for us in other ways, like chapter 4 that Seth referenced. We read he's able to intercede for us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our temptations, of course. But, but the idea here is his perpetual priesthood, having offered himself in our place, serves as our intercession. Notice, once for all and once forgiven, we remain forgiven. One, listen, listen. Once for all, we remain forgiven. You need to speak that truth to yourself every day. That, that's what it means to speak the gospel to yourself every day. Once forgiven, always forgiven. You see, when you fall into sin, remind yourself that Jesus, your great high priest, sits at the Father's right hand and his finished work continually intercedes for you in your brokenness, in your failure, in your sin. Sometimes I'm just too ashamed to ever lift my face before God. On your own merit, to be clear, you are always too ashamed to lift your face before God but on the merit of Christ, you always can. It brings us to our last point. The Melchizedekian priesthood is greater by nature of its perfect high priest, verses 26 and following. For it was fitting or proper, appropriate for us to have such a high priest. The us there is just a general term. It's fitting for people. To, to have a great high priest, to have such a high priest. That's why he took on, remember we saw this, that's why he took on human flesh. If he's going to represent us to God and God to us, he needed to be us. This is appropriate for us people to have a people priest. There's more than that. How is this high priest described? He's holy. Different from the normal word for holy. It doesn't necessarily speak of being set apart. Listen, it speaks of doing that which is right or righteous in the eyes of God. Jesus did that. He was always holy, always doing what was right before God, which means he was innocent. That is, as we'll see in a moment, he was not guilty of sin. Therefore, he did not need to make atonement for his own sin. He had none for which to atone. You see, third, he was undefiled. He was out the personal defilement of sin, both inside and out. Had no sin such that he was separated from sinners. All that means is, well, he was fully man. He, he was separated from sinners because he wasn't a sinner. I, I've said it this way before. Jesus had all of the attributes, all of the qualities necessary for humanity. He had flesh. He, he, he got tired. He got hungry. All of the things necessary for humanity, he had it. Everything except this. You see, he had all of the attributes necessary for humanity, but not common to humanity because every human also has this. It's in nature. Jesus did not. He didn't. And so therefore he is now exalted above the heavens where he can make perpetual intercession for sinners, having seated himself at the right hand of God in glory, a place of glory that was rightfully his. He intercedes for us by his glorious, perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 27, all of that is what sets him eternally apart from that former priesthood. You see, he is the one who, who does not need daily, like those other priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then the sins of the people. No, 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 he didn't need to do that. 
He did it once for all. Now we remember that that offering, typically we think of the day of atonement when the high priest would enter the most holy place and offer a sacrifice again, first for himself and for his family as a sinner and, and then for the people. And he did that once a year. Year after year. But, but there was a daily sin offering brought by people, administered by the priests, the mediators, some no doubt other priests. And the high priest himself would offer for himself a sin offering, not Jesus, you see. He never did. He never offered himself as a sin offering for himself. <laughs> he offered himself as a sin offering for us. He was completely different. First, he had no sin, which needed sacrifice. Second, he only offered his sacrifice once. That was all that was needed for all time, for all sin. And third, his sacrifice was not an animal. It was not the blood of bull and goats, but it was his perfect sinless self in the stead of ruined sinners. The author rounds off the chapter nicely with his closing verse, which serves as our conclusion. For the law appointed men as high priests who are weak, <laughs> useless, kind of like Aaron. Jesus, Aaron. R really? Like Aaron. But the word of the oath from Psalm 110, it came after the law, notice, superseding the law, and it appointed not a mere man, but his son. <laughs> not just any son, but the very son of God, Jesus Christ, who has been made perfect forever. Now we remember that it was not that he was imperfect, but he became the perfect high priest when he took on human flesh and faced the same, same temptations, the same sufferings as we face meaning he knows, he understands us. He is the perfect high priest, meaning he is able to perfect those, that is, justify those, save those, make those right, who draw near to God through him. He's it. He's all we've got. But why do we need another? Stand for prayer. Father, we've just spent the last 30 minutes or so exalting Christ and being reminded who he is to us. Our great high priest, seated at your right hand right now by his finished work, by the wounds that he bears. Just remember that song, Arise, my soul, arise. Five wounds he bears, one in each hand, one in each foot and in his side he makes intercession for us by his death burial and resurrection we stand complete we stand forgiven forever because we have a forever ever living high priest and we thank you in Jesus name Amen